I'd be really curious to know when you hear the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When you hear it sung, perhaps, or you hear it read, I'd be curious to know where it takes you in your mind. What memories does it draw together? What, what thoughts does it bring back? What emotions rise up? Oftentimes, this psalm is probably the most familiar psalm for many of us. You don't really need to have ever read the Bible to more than likely somewhere you will have bumped into the 23rd psalm. Maybe it was at a funeral. Maybe it was at a reading. Maybe you noticed it stuck on someone's wall somewhere. You wandered into a gift shop and it was available as a card. This psalm has sort of a cultural spread in the Western world that it's kind of hard to become an adult and not have encountered it at some point. So when we turn to this psalm at the end of our psalm series this morning, I'm kind of realizing that we're moving into this sort of territory that might actually be very familiar for some of you and might even be the favorite psalm of some of you, which in itself would be interesting as we have our conversation this morning as to why it is that this particular psalm resonates with us as Christians. The psalm itself, Psalm 23, is a psalm of thanksgiving, and, and it's important to clarify what we mean by that. As we've journeyed through various different types of psalms in this series this year, we now have a psalm of thanksgiving. What often happens for us is thankfulness is a response to something good that's happened, right? So somebody does something to you and you say, thank you. Uh, that would be basic manners, right? And, um, and, but yet, actually, what happens in thanksgiving psalms is they are invariably not responses to things that God has done. Actually, thanksgiving psalms are part of the reorientation of our hearts that the psalms are often trying to do. And what actually is going on with the thanksgiving psalm is the psalmist is invariably saying thank you to God about things which don't currently appear to be true. So the psalmist actually looks at the news, right? They, they turn on the news cycles as you and I do, and we see what the world looks like. And in that quite depressing certain place, we then reach out in trust to God and say thanks to God. Not because of how things are, but because we believe God is going to do something that will make things different. So the Thanksgiving Psalms actually seem quite ridiculous sometimes because we say them. So the, the Psalm that we're about to read, The Lord is My Shepherd, is very, very well known as, at a funeral. Well, what a strange place to read a Psalm of thankfulness, unless a Psalm of thankfulness is a hope of, for something better, for something beyond, for something outside of where we presently are. What I want to do this morning in our conversation is essentially just talk about the sort of ingredients of Psalm, uh, of Psalm 23. Uh, you know, what are the bits and pieces that are involved in making this, gra this great Psalm, this well-known Psalm? But let's begin by reading it. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
So again, these resonances of familiarity start to take over. And what happens is our brains are drawn in a moment like this to various different thoughts and ideas. And some of us, it's like, okay, what do I think that means? For some people, it's like, oh, I've not noticed that particular line in that psalm before. For other people, it takes us back to a particular moment, perhaps a poignant moment of life, perhaps a funeral of a loved one, perhaps a a significant point. And, and, And so the psalms kind of draw us, particularly when they're familiar, back into those sort of places. So what I want to do is just work through this psalm, point out some stuff, discuss some stuff, and hopefully as we build it together, it kind of brings some different appreciations for what's going on here. I'm going to leave the screen just like this so that you can see the psalm as we talk about it and just point out some things. So let's start here with the idea of shepherd. Here's a metaphor that's quite common in biblical times because shepherds were quite common in biblical times. Now, I've not noticed a lot of shepherds since I've come to Alberta. Um, I don't seem to see a lot of sheep. Uh, It does give me some concern about what I'm actually eating when they say it's Albertan lamb because I've not seen any sheep yet. So I don't know if it was just a particularly furry cow or, you know. But most of us don't encounter shepherds. As a result, the metaphor immediately sort of distances us. So if you're in the ancient world, David uh, is, is said to have written this psalm. Uh, we encounter David in, in, in 1 Samuel as a shepherd. So he's writing a psalm about God using the metaphor that he relates to really well. It, it's, it's a, it's, it relates to his job. It relates to what he grew up doing. So he knows this intimately. And it would be difficult to live in an agrarian society like the ancient world that this psalm is written in without knowing at least one shepherd. So you kind of immediately have an idea of, oh, I know what we're dealing with here when you tell me we're talking about a shepherd. Now, one of the things, even if you don't know anything about a shepherd, you probably have some sort of conclusions you can draw. So one day if you're at the mall and you bump into a guy with a staff and a long, you know, looks like an extra from a nativity drama, uh, you know, and he's wandering through the mall and you say, you're a shepherd. And he says, yes, I'm at work and there's no sheep with him you're going to say, you're not a very good shepherd. Because the only thing I know about shepherds is they look after sheep. So when a shepherd is at work, that means there's going to be sheep nearby. The Lord is my shepherd, the psalmist says. So kind of sewn into this metaphor is the idea of the presence of God, that God is here. Shepherds without sheep are not shepherds. So, so if God is the shepherd, then that means he's with us. He's present. He is here. But notice how the psalmist refers to him. He says he is my shepherd. Not the Lord is a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, the the ancient world, again, you see this in a lot of the texts of the Old Testament. They're very corporate. They talk about us as groups. They think about communities and people and villages and and families and everything together. But this psalm is quite unusual because it's very personal. Sheep normally exist in flocks. But here the psalmist talks in a very, very individual sense, the Lord is my shepherd. Of course, in this level of this possession then, if the Lord is mine, if he's my shepherd, of course, that creates a slight problem for us as contemporary intelligent people. Because if the Lord is the shepherd and he's my shepherd, that means I am a sheep. And I don't know if you've ever called anyone a sheep, but if you did, it probably wasn't a compliment. You know, you're a sheep, you know, you don't go, yes, that is exactly what I've been going for with my life. Invariably, actually, like when we, when, we, when we bring up our children, we tell them exactly the opposite. Our youth leaders are like, don't be a sheep, right? You know, don't, don't just do what everyone else is doing. Have your own thing, because all of us know one thing about sheep, aside from our views on their flavor. 
we know they're pretty dumb. Like sheep are not, like they're not up there. Like somebody's going to come up to me afterwards and tell me something about a sheep that did math or something like that. I, I don't know, but, but they're, not, they're not known as smart animals. They're kind of known as, you know, the sheep heads one way, all the other sheep follow. You know, I mean like sheep, if sometimes they fall over or get pushed over and they can't get back up again. So I'm told. I have no personal experience of this. Like, here's a creature that can't stand back up sometimes when it's pushed over. So, now think about this for a second. Let's just kind of explore a bit of a mental image. At some point, I don't want to get into the arguments about how all these things work, but at some point, God created sheep. And the God who knows everything created sheep because he knew he was going to need a really good metaphor for us. Like, I just find that offensive. Like, you know, of all the things that God could have compared us to, he made this dumb animal and said, that's going to be really helpful once we get to the Psalms, right? Because we're going to need something to explain what people are like. And unfortunately, what we're going to go with is this really thick creature. And so, so if the Lord is my shepherd, that means I am a sheep. And I'm going to have to hold that metaphor in my own mind as I read this psalm then. So I'm beginning. You see what I've done? Is we've kind of started this really familiar, lovely psalm that we read at funerals, and now we're all offended at it. We're like, okay, this is like slightly off here. I'm not so comfortable with this anymore. Um, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, the King James says, uh, the King James translation is the one that most of us are actually strangely familiar with. It's the, the one that the songs are often bear, based on. So we kind of hear the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Uh, this, the New International Version translates it, I lack nothing. Quite literally, nothing is missing from my life. Now, that's a thought for us in capitalist society. The idea that we would have this, this, this psalm that says, God is my shepherd, I am a sheep, and nothing is missing from my life. Like, like we live in a context of, of heavy advertising, and, and advertising seems to work on the premise that, that I will present wants to you, and if I do a good enough job of pre presenting your wants to you, you will transition those wants into your needs. Have you ever noticed how subtly that happens in your life? You see a commercial for something, and you think, wow, that looks interesting. And that journey that happens internally from, wow, that looks interesting, wouldn't it be fun to have one of those, to, I must have one of those, and my life will be incomplete unless I have one. And yet here the psalmist begins with, there's nothing missing from my life. I wonder how easy it would be for us in the contemporary world to make a statement like that with authenticity. What would our life look like? Perhaps there's even a, a kind of mental reflection that we could engage in to say, what would my life look like to lack nothing? And then perhaps the question we would then ask ourselves is, the life that I imagined in which would be the life of me lacking nothing, what would that look like? And why would it look like that? The psalmist says, however, that this, uh, this amazing shepherd God makes him lie down. Quite literally, the word lie there, is, is, it would be better translated as sprawl, but that's not really very, you kind of, we like the image of, of, kind of this Victorian lady sort of on a nice meadow just enjoying and relaxing uh, in, in these green pastures. But that's not kind of sheep, right? You're a sheep, remember, in this, in this stop trying to come back and be somebody cool, you know, kind of like, like this, you know, on the side of the, 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 the pasture. This is a sheep. It's done. It's lying down, enjoying the day 
beside quiet waters, because sheep only drink from quiet waters. So, so this beautiful image of this Lord who would drop the sheep in a place that it can relax. Sheep only lie down and drink when there's no threat. So there's a safety image going around here with this uh, with this shepherd. And then, then the text follows on, he refreshes my soul. So, let's talk for a second uh, about, about this. So, the, the text as we find it in most of our translations of the Psalms, you, you know this already, but the Psalms are originally written in Hebrew, right? So, so they're written in the language that everybody spoke at that particular time way, where they were uh, writing them. That kind of makes sense because people invariably don't listen to stuff they don't understand. It's obvious if you think about it. Uh, so the Psalms are written in Hebrew. The problem is none of us speak Hebrew and, uh, the, uh, because we have like lives and stuff. Um, so, so, so we need to translate them into, into a different language. The problem is a translator has an interesting challenge because when you're translating something that's full of metaphor as a psalm is, your question when you translate it is, do I preserve the language that was original or do I tr try and preserve the sort of sense, the metaphorical meaning, the, the sort of what's going on here? And then how do I make it feel like poetry? So you'll notice if you kind of bounce through a few different translations of the Bible, the psalms is one of the places where they vary the most, because actually every different translator has a slightly different philosophy of what we're trying to do here. If you take a Hebrew psalm and sort of word for word it into English, it kind of is going to be really clunky and not work very well. So in 1611, when they, when they published the King James translation, which is one of the world's most famous English translations and still probably one of the more dominantly used translations, uh, they were basically working on, on a variety of theories, but of course it was in 1611. Right? So the culture and the, and, the, and the ideas and the language of 1611 is what sort of gets used to make that translation. However, the 23rd Psalm is so popular that when new translators come along, so this is the New International Version, it was translated, I think the Psalms are around about 1979 through 1981 that they were working on this. The problem is the idea of the King James and its translation of Psalm 23 is so deeply embedded in English-speaking culture that the new translators go, man, if we vary too much from what everybody knows, it's going to sound like a completely different sort of psalm, and therefore people are going to go, what's going on with this new translation? Because that's what you do when you buy a new Bible. You go to your favorite bits, right, and go, how does it sound in this new translation? And then ironically, if it sounds different, we throw the new translation out. Go figure. So what the King James did when it translated verse 2, and you'll notice it even as we've laid it out here, is it says, he leads me beside quiet waters, he refreshes my soul. So what we naturally do as readers of this text is we tie this line here about refreshing the soul to the previous line. So we assume this has got something to do with the lying and the grass and the, and the drinking of the still waters. But that's not how the Hebrew does it. In fact, Arabic translations of Psalm 23 do a really good job of translating it because how they take this here passage is they translate it as he brings me back. That's English I'm writing in just in case you can't read it. Um, the <laughs> he brings me back. It's a new sentence. He brings me back. He guides me along the right paths. So now do you see how these two ideas are actually connecting? That one idea, it isn't related to the refreshing and the relaxing and the, and the taking things easy. What the psalmist is saying here is, I'm a sheep, remember, and what do we know about sheep? They get lost. Your brain's probably jumping now to a story Jesus told at some point. Sheep get lost. So the psalmist now says, actually, I am, a I am guided by the good shepherd, and I have a ha habit of getting lost. But what does the shepherd do when I get lost? He brings me back 
But not only does he just bring me back, and we've talked about this a few times over the Psalm series, he doesn't just bring me back, give me a clean start and say, off you go again. But this time he brings me back and he puts me on a right path. The Hebrew is tzedek. Tzedek literally means to be balanced, to have justice, to be righteous. So I'm over here in my own trouble, causing all of my own problems. And what does the good shepherd do? He brings me back onto a balanced path. This isn't a rule for all of life. But sometimes it's worth knowing that the rabbinic way of reading the Old Testament is that along the assumption that if we follow God's ways, life will just be easier for us. That so often the troubles that we find ourselves in are actually our own doing because we're trying to find a different path to walk along. And here the psalmist says, he guides me along a balanced path for his name's sake. And then verse 4, famous, we kind of know this one. And perhaps even as we read it here in the New International Version, you thought, well, that's not how I remember this. They, you know, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the King James says. And that's probably what you remember. Yes, ah, that's, that sounds more familiar to me. But again, the Hebrew doesn't quite say that. The Hebrew says, though I walk through the darkest valley, the valley of deep darkness. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, you see this idea of the darkest valley being a metaphor for death. So it's not a ridiculous translation to, to render it that way. But the problem is, when we hear about it as a, as a language of death, we kind of only think about it in that context. And I feel like it's important with a psalm like this to just be aware of the fact that there's many darknesses that you can find yourself in within life that you want to know God's with you in. There are darknesses of death, but there's also cancer and Alzheimer's and depression and divorce and domestic violence and unemployment and, and financial challenge and poverty and, and homelessness, all these things that happen. And is God with us in there? And so there's something resonates with me in the psalm when I read it as that even though I might find myself in the darkest of valleys, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Remember, because he's a shepherd and a shepherd is always with their sheep. And one of the reasons then the psalmist says uh, this is even though I'm, I'm in this darkest valley, he then says the shepherd has something with him. He has a rod and a staff. And, and maybe we think, well, that's the same thing, a rod and a staff. That just sounds like a long pole that you wander around with because, again, we're more used to shepherds in tractors, um, but the Hebrew definitely does not mean tractor. Uh, your, your, a rod is a weapon in, in, in this context, and so, so the, the shepherd is armed. Uh, why is the shepherd armed? Well, he's armed to protect. The shepherd is, is bringing safety. We may be in the middle of Death Valley. We may be in the middle of the darkest valley, but the shepherd is prepared to protect the sheep. Hence why there's no fear. But the shepherd also has a staff. A staff is not a weapon, but if you are actually to watch a shepherd in the ancient world using a staff, you might be forgiven for thinking that it is a weapon. Because the sheep might get struck with the staff from time to time. They might get pushed with the staff, prodded with the staff. Even at times, the staff would be hooked around the sheep's neck and it dragged back into the path that it's supposed to be in. Because although it feels quite aggressive, this was the shepherd's way of keeping the sheep in a place of safety. So there's a defense, but there's also a guidance. But then curiously, we're not quite often sure how to relate to that. It's interesting, in Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 12 that the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves, which is culturally complex for us as modern people because 
really, if you love something, you just let it do whatever it wants, right? Because that's what I would like. I'd like to just do whatever I want, and, that, and I'm pretty sure I'd be really good at doing whatever I want and making my own decisions up and being able to live that way. But no, the Bible tells us that if you really love something, you give it guidance, you give it boundaries, you give it parameters, and the good shepherd is giving parameters to the sheep. Now, and again, I, truthfully, we know that. We know we need boundaries. We know we need parameters, we know that God disciplines us and guides us and calls us to a particular way. But does that comfort us? The psalmist says, it comforts me that God has given me boundaries. It comforts me that God has given me guidelines. It comforts me that God will hold me in certain places. And I can be appreciative of boundaries, right? I can understand the logic of boundaries. But if I'm honest, I'm not always sure they comfort me. There's something in my, in my being that wants to fight against that and say, mm, no, you know what, I really would like it if it wasn't like that. And yet the psalmist calls us to a place where we might find comfort in our discipline. So what you'll notice then at this point is these first sort of four uh, verses of the psalm here have been about sheep. But then the metaphor switches. I don't know if you've noticed this before, but now all of a sudden, the second part of the psalm here, we're now talking about a host. A party seems to be happening. Uh, unless it's a sheep party. Uh, but, it, but it seems to me now we've got this, you prepare a table before me. Now, interestingly, right, the metaphor switches again because we're reading this in the ancient world. Uh, preparing a table in the ancient world was feminine work. That was the work of women, not the work of men. Um, in the ancient world. <laughs> if men don't prepare tables in the modern world, they're um, called uh, jerks. Um, so... So you prepare a table before me. God is doing the, the feminine work. You see this actually, it's in the Bible way more commonly than we often think, particularly in our modern patriarchal culture, that God as mother is this quite dominant image. The image in Isaiah quite regularly, you see this notion of God as mother. And, and, and then David in this psalm, having gone with this quite, again, in his context, quite manly image of the protecting shepherd, he now brings in the, 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 the sort of mother, the feminine image, sort of pouring out this lavish table in front of him. But then you notice the invited guests, right? They're kind of, well, they're your enemies. Great party, God. You know, can you imagine going, being invited to someone's house? Hey, we'd love you to come around and hang with us, and you turn up, and it's all the people that hate you. You know, kind of sort of party you invite the pastor to, right? We got some things to say, and now we're going to say them, you know? <laughs> and my way of reading this for many, many years, uh, and, and I'm, again, I, I wonder if it might be similar for you, is that I kind of read this as almost David sort of imagining this kind of, man, nah, sort of situation where here's me, I'm at the great table, look at the great spread God has given me, and you enemies can line up and watch me feast because God has protected me. I was right, you were wrong, verily says the Lord. <laughs> I don't know if that's how you've read that, but I've often sort of read that as a kind of vindication imagery that, that, that hears me and God has vindicated me. He was on my side the whole time, and now my enemies get to realize that. But the rabbinic readers of this, and of course the rabbis are the, the sort of Jewish teachers of Scripture, they look at this line and say, no, that's not what's actually going on here. This is not you kind of lording it over your enemies. The rabbis say, imagine a table, and you're invited to this table, and the table is a story of your life. 
And the, the table is a story of, of, of your being and all of your experiences and all of the people who have made that possible. What is it that brings you to where you are right now? And the stunning thing about sitting at this table is that many of the people who helped you get to where you are right now were your enemies. They were people that didn't want the best for you. There were people that tried to do harm to you. There were people that tried to influence you in particular negative ways. But the beauty of the Lord who is your shepherd is that even those negative things have helped you be where you are right now. And although we would want this life that had no enemies, actually what brings us to where we are is this complex journey of pain and difficulty and also joys and happiness. And so we find this, you think about it, you know it's true in your own life. You have a relationship and you're in love and everything's happy and the relationship breaks down and everything's terrible and bad. But then as a result of this relationship breaking down, sometime later you find yourself in a new, better relationship where joy and happiness is found. And somewhere one day while reflecting on it, you realize if it wasn't for that pain here, I wouldn't have this joy here. The psalmist seems to be imagining this scene where God's provision is laid out before us, and we are thankful for it. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup, my cup overflows, the King James translated this as. But this again, it kind of gives us an insight into culture. Literally, the Hebrew says, my cup satisfies. So when the translators are faced with this slightly awkward sentence, it's not how we talked in the 1600s, it's not how we talk now, and thought, how do, we, how do we translate this idea of the cup satisfying? What we end up with in the Western English-speaking world is, that must mean a cup that overflows. Because we love the idea of all you can eat. And therefore, for us, something good must mean that there's lots of it. You know, I'm imagining a cup of wine and there's so much wine, it's just kind of pouring out the side. And some of this comes actually from our scarcity worldview that we have, that we look around the world and we know there's not enough to go around. It seems like there's, there's just not enough to, to go around. And therefore we think, well then I've got to get as much as I can for myself. So I need to have more. I need to have more than enough all the time. Interestingly, St. Paul, when he was going through a difficult situation in his life, and he asked God for his help, we don't really know what the situation was, but we knew it was difficult. And, and, and Paul reaches out to the Lord in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and what he hears back from God is not, my grace is more than enough. Even though there are many notions around the world uh, that you hear it in songs and you hear it in books that God's grace is more than enough, but that's not what the Lord says to Paul. He says, my grace is is sufficient for you. Because the Lord's cup doesn't overflow. The Lord's cup satisfies. An overflowing cup's easy, by the way. When you own the cattle on a thousand hills, as another psalm tells us, it would be easy for the Lord to just overflow your cup. But the Bible says the Lord is my shepherd. There's intimacy, there's knowledge, there's awareness there. My grace is sufficient for you. Jesus says that, that God knows the hairs on your head. So what you get is not a cup that overflows. It's not an all you can eat because any restaurant can set out all you can eat. But imagine a chef. Imagine a chef who could prepare a meal that was exactly right for you. It was what you needed for this particular moment. 
It might look like that guy over there has more than you. It might look like the person to your right has less than you. But the Lord gives us exactly what we need. You prepare a table for me in front of all the people that brought me to where I am, and the cup that I get is perfect for me because God gives us what we need. I lack nothing. Your grace is sufficient. And then right towards the end, you get this final notion, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. A beautiful sentence, unless you're paranoid. Because somebody is following you. (laughs) He is hunting you down. He is chasing you. He is not letting go. He will not give up. A shepherd who prepares for me who won't let me go. That again might sound familiar of a story you've heard before from Jesus. Surely your goodness and love will follow me. The Lord will chase me. He will hunt me down. He will search for me. He will look for me. Romans 8 and verse 39 says that neither height nor depth or anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The image of love that's so constant in the Bible is of a God who's chasing us, of a God who's, who's after us. He wants to find us. He wants to get us, and he wants to love us. So you are being followed. You're not alone. And the whole psalm is leaning towards that. You're my shepherd. You give me good places to lie. You refresh me. But actually, it's not that you refresh me. It's that you bring me back. You're always with me, even in the darkest valley. And why is God always with you? because he loves you and because he's following you. The Hebrew word here is chesed. Chesed is much, much deeper than this notion of just simple, like love is a kind of bit of a a washy term in the contemporary world. Like what do we really mean by that? I'm particularly fond of uh, Brennan Manning's uh, way of describing this. In In his book, The Furious Longing of God, he says, for his love is never, never, never based on our performance, which is good because we're sheep. It's never conditioned by our moods of elation or depression. The furious love of God knows no shadow of alteration or change. It is reliable and always tender. God is always active. He's always present. He's never passive. He's never absent. And that's what the psalm is telling us. And even when you think you are, Just look and notice that the chesed of God is following you. This deep notion. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. In fact, uh, one scholar, Robin Rowledge, says, Thus, as well as being God's loving kindness expressed to those who stand in right relationship with him. So chesed is about people who are in good relationship with God, and God loves those people. Then he says, chesed is also of vital significance as that in accordance with which God forgives those who have broken the terms of the relationship and by which he ensures that the the breakdown is not permanent. Chesed both derives from the relationship and is the means by which the relationship is enabled to continue, even though because of the unfaithfulness of one party, it might be properly terminated. Now, I think that's a really helpful quote. Uh, I have to say that. He used to be my boss. Uh, <laughs> but I actually, uh, Robin's a, a bit of an expert on this particular term. And I want you, as you read that kind of slightly intense statement, 
what Robin's saying when he unpacks this is when you see that word loving kindness or goodness and love follow me, all of the ex- explanation that he's giving you in that text there is what's going on in the Hebrew word chesed, which we translate as love. So it's not simply, hey, I love you. Right? Yes, it is that God loves us. But hey, here, wait a minute, let's look a little deeper at this. What if I tell him I don't love him anymore? What if I run away? What if I break the relationship? What if I behave in such a way that says I don't love you? What we find is God's chesed still loves you. And then what you then find when you realize that actually this relationship is a mess and perhaps you move from being the lost sheep to being the lost son and you decide it is a mess. I have broken the relationship. Let me go back. What you find when you go back is the relationship was never broken, that God still loved you, that God still, his heart was towards you and that he was still following you. You may be unfaithful to God, but he will not be unfaithful to you. And so perhaps when we think of Jesus in Luke chapter 15, he talks about a sheep that a shepherd went looking for. Why did the shepherd go looking for the sheep? Because of God's chesed, because that's what loving kindness looks like. Why did the woman search for the coin? The search and the party afterwards was surely worth more than the coin, But when you're in a covenantal relationship with somebody, it's not about the value, the logic, the ease. It's because you're in that relationship. And why does the father welcome the son home? The father welcomes the son home because he's his son. And nothing the son can do will change that. And surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Tim Keller says this of the 23rd Psalm. God has a celebration meal with us. Not after we finally get out of the dark valley, but in the middle of it, in the presence of our enemies. He wants us to rejoice in Him in the midst of our troubles. We have this tendency to think about God at the beginning of things, and we have this tendency to think about God at the end of things. We think about God in our salvation. Oh, He brings me forgiveness, and in the future, He'll take me to heaven, we say. But this psalm is not about the beginning of things, and it's not about the ending of things. This psalm is about the God who is in the middle. And the God of the middle is the God who is with us. The God of the middle is the God who's there with us. So the psalm doesn't say, hey, remember what God was like back then. And the psalm doesn't say, hey, don't worry, uh, you know, this is, this is what it's going to be like tomorrow. The psalm says there will be dark valleys. There will be enemies But the one thing you can count on for sure is that God is with you in the middle of that. And for me, I feel like this ancient, old, thousands of years old, written in a language that we don't know, in a culture that we don't understand, with metaphors that are foreign to us, speaks to us in our present world. Because I don't know about you, but I need a God who's in the middle. I need a God who's here with me in the mess right now. I need a God who's, who's with me in the dark valley. I know that life won't always allow me to avoid the dark valley. The Bible doesn't promise me that. I know that life doesn't, is, is going to give me enemies. Not everybody is going to be good towards me. Not everybody is going to wish well towards me. But what I need to know is that I'm not alone in that. How many of you, when things get tough, think to yourself, wouldn't it be better if I was all alone? How many of you find yourself meeting some trauma or some tragedy or some difficulty in your life? What we do is we want to draw ourselves to people. We want to find something because everything is made worse by loneliness. And what we get in this psalm is that the God of the middle is with us. 
Interestingly then, of course, when Jesus comes along in John chapter 10, what metaphor does he use to describe himself? In John chapter 10, he says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, he says again, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Fascinatingly, Jesus is the only person in history that knows what it is to be a shepherd and a sheep. Because not only is he the God who is the shepherd of Psalm 23, he also comes and lives and breathes amongst us as one of us. But Jesus takes this, 150 Psalms, and this is the metaphor he chooses for his ministry. Interestingly, if you actually look, and you, if you, even if you've maybe been reading the Psalms throughout this series, the real dominant image, imagery in the Psalms is what uh, the, the biblical scholar Kenneth Bailey talks about them as homeland security images. So the dominant imagery that you find in the Psalms is God is my rock, God is my shield, God is the high tower, he's my fortress, he's my stronghold, and so on. If you actually, if you add it up, these are the imageries that the Psalms want you to know about God. God is strong and powerful and he'll keep you safe. The idea of God as shepherd, very, very rare in the Old Testament. And yet out of this, this particular psalm is the one that Jesus chooses to represent himself. Very rare in the Old Testament, but the one that Jesus chooses to describe what God is like. In fact, Jesus never refers to God as the stronghold, as the fortress, as the mighty tower. He doesn't use all of the homeland security language. Instead, he gives us this image of a person deeply committed to these kind of stupid, fluffy things called sheep. So this psalm also becomes a metaphor for how we understand Jesus. And Jesus used it to understand how he is and how he wants us to be. So may you as you think about this psalm where the Lord is your shepherd, may you trust him that because we are sheep, he knows what's best for us. May you realize that he will discipline you, but if you let it, it will comfort you. May you realize that you will find dark valleys, but you'll never be alone in them. May you know that your enemies, as difficult as it may be right now, are all still under God's control and that he loves you, and that he will chase you with his furious love. No matter how fast you run, you will find him to be faster. And may God's grace and peace be with you. Amen.